الحمد للہ الحمد للہ الذي هدانا لہذا وما کنا لنحتدی لولا ان هدان اللہ وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدًا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرًا وبشيرًا لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرج الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا محمد رسول الله والذين معه الشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وَكُلُّ بِدْعَةٍ ضَلَالَةٍ وَكُلُّ ضَلَالَةٍ فِي النَّارِ يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم فما كان جواب قومه إلا أن قالوا أخرجوا آل لوط من قريتكم إنهم أناس يتطهرون Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims This ayah is the 56th ayah in Surah An-Naml a very close rendition of it also appears as the 82nd ayah of Surah Al-A'raf roughly translated or before I get to the translation the context of the ayah is in reference to the admonition of Prophet Lut Prophet Lot السلام, to his people to cease and desist from deviant sexual practices And so in response to his advices and warnings to his people they said the following to Prophet Lut and this is the substance of the ayah that was just quoted 
And so as the ayah goes, the translation is And the only thing that his people had to say is the following Expel the family of Lut from your from your social order because they are a people who prefer purity and so obviously when we are talking about deviant sexual practices in the context of Prophet Lut we are obviously referring to homosexuality now this is a difficult issue to talk about for several reasons but two of the more important ones or at least two of the ones that occurred to me firstly this is a difficult subject because it has ceased to be a moral issue and it has moved into the domain of secular political discourse and so what this means is that what people want to do trumps what people ought to do and what people should be doing and so anyone who stands up in a public forum and tries to approach this particular issue from a moral point of view or who tries to filter it through a moral standard he is immediately or she is immediately labeled as being homophobic and this is much akin to those who stand up in public and in a principled fashion take the state of Israel to task they are reflexively labeled as being anti-semitic the second difficulty in dealing with this issue in a public forum concerns the Islamic realm or the Muslim domain for in that domain this particular issue is dealt with by the extremes on one side we have Islamic scholars on one extreme we have Islamic scholars that tend to take a quietist approach to the issue of sexuality that departs from a moral standard and if pressed upon the issue then they say as a defense of their own position that we are not saying anything different than various other faith communities in the world today on the other end on the other extreme this issue is dealt with through an exposition of the hudud the punishment for homosexuality and so between these two extremes there is a great middle that is never dealt with and that middle concerns perhaps an understanding of the issue and why Allah Ta'ala Jalla Thikmatuh may have forbidden this abominable practice and so so long as the Muslim community is dealing at its extremes it is never trying to understand Allah's wisdom in prohibiting this behavior and so our intent today is to try as best as we can with the limited information that's available to us to try to deal with this great middle and to try to understand Allah's wisdom 
in preferring a certain kind of sexuality for men. And so let us take a look at this ayah more closely. وَمَا كَانَ جَوَابَ قَوْمِهِ إِلَّا أَنْ قَالُوا أَخْرِجُوهُمْ مِنْ قَرْيَتِكُمْ إِنَّهُمْ أُنَاسٌ يَتَطَحَّرُونَ And so they had nothing else to say except expel these people of Luth or the, uh, the companions of Luth from your social order. Meaning expel them by force. And their reason for wanting these people expelled because these are a people who prefer purity. إِنَّهُمْ أُنَاسٌ And so because they prefer purity, in that domain they ought to be expelled by force. And so what this tells us is that when a deviant sexuality acquires power and numbers in society, they seek to exclude by force the moral element in that society. And I don't need to give you examples. If you sort of just look around the world today, you can prove this to yourself with examples. And in addition to seeking to banish them from society, they also seek to persecute these people by bombarding them with reasons about why divine guidance is false insofar as this particular issue is concerned. And if I were to put it in today's language, I would say that they seek to banish the people who want to uphold a moral standard because these people, these moral people reject what I may call a gender apartheid. Now you don't hear it represented in that way but we can call gender exclusivism a type of apartheid. Now there are many ways to pers persecute the moral element in society. As we had just mentioned, it could take the approach of violence. It could take the approach of media and intellectual and academic pressure to try to not execute a moral standard in society or to try your best not to judge human behavior by a moral standard to sort of in a sense instead of putting deviant sexuality in the closet to put the moral standard in the closet now this desire to persecute the people who try to uphold a moral standard in the last 100 years, it has reached a degree of sophistication that has never been seen before. And as a case in point, let us consider the economic system that is being followed all around the world today. This is the so-called Keynesian economic system. And it gets its name from the famous British economist known as John Maynard Keynes. He lived somewhere between 80 to 140 years ago, basically at the turn of the, of the previous Gregorian century. His thoughts, his ideas, his philosophy insofar as economics is concerned is studied at universities and academic institutions all around the world perhaps even at the high school level. And not only is it studied at institutions, obviously it's studied at institutions for a reason. 
And the desire is that when these people graduate from academic institutions and move out into the policy space, that they use these ideas to create policy and to create programs on the basis of these ideas. There's some economists that are alive today that say that John Maynard Keynes, the originator of this economic philosophy, saved capitalism. But it is impossible to understand Keynes, his ideas and his philosophy, unless we take note of the fact that he was a homosexual. For most of us, his life, he was a homosexual or a bisexual. Granted, for the last 20 years of his life, he was married to a Russian ballerina. But at the time that he lived, Britain was still under the guidance of the Victorian moral standard. And so homosexuality was considered to be deplorable. And anyone caught engaged in the practice was sent to prison. And so for an intellectual, this was a death knell. This would be the, if he was discovered or say outed from the closet, that would have been the end of his intellectual and academic career. And so marriage was a useful public cover to shield a private and a personal deviant sexuality. When Keynes was in his formative years, he was a student at Cambridge. And while at Cambridge, it's a famous university in the UK, most of you have heard of it. And while at Cambridge, he joined a secret society called the Apostles. And after he left Cambridge, after he graduated, he joined a powerful intellectual group called the Bloomsbury Group. This was a group of intellectuals that used to get together and discuss ideas, philosophies, and theories. The thing of it is, is that in the 1920s and 1930s, there were a large number of homosexuals and bisexuals that determined the direction of the Bloomsbury group. Now once again I bring up the point that at the time that they lived homosexuality was considered to be deplorable. It was considered to be a crime, a, a sin, an immoral act And so most of these people, though they happened to be married in public, they had to sort of observe a schizophrenic lifestyle. That whatever their private sexuality was, they could not practice that in public. And so they had to represent themselves in a way that did not agree with their private convictions. Many of us would call that today nifaq. But you can file that thought away in your mind somewhere in the back. Nonetheless, insofar as the overall direction of the Bloomsbury group was concerned, it promoted on behalf of its members their desire to do anything they wanted to do not what they should do morally not what they ought to be doing according to a divine standard but anything that they desired to do based on their own thinking and their own desires and in this regard I'd like to read to you Uh, some quotes from the man himself. This will help you understand his mindset. 
And if you understand the source of where the economic theory came from, you will begin to understand the results of its implementation in our day-to-day. If you understand the mindset of the Creator, you can understand the impact in society once his ideas are implemented. And so let us hear from the man himself. In the first of these quotes, Keynes is commenting on what he learned from uh, George Edward Moore and his book Principia Ethica. He was he along with his contemporaries when they were students at Cambridge, they were studying this particular text in college. And so in commenting on it, Keynes says the following. We accepted Moore's religion and discarded his morals. In our opinion, one of the greatest advantages of his religion was that it made morals unnecessary. Nothing mattered except states of mind, our own and other people's, but chiefly our own. The appropriate subjects of passionate contemplation and communion were the creation and enjoyment of aesthetic experience and the pursuit of knowledge. In another one of his thoughts, he's recorded this in his own autobiography. We entirely repudiated a personal liability on us to obey general rules. This was a very important part of our faith. And for the outer world, it was our most obvious and dangerous characteristic. We repudiated entirely customary morals, conventions, and traditional wisdom. We were, that is to say in the strict sense of the term, immoralists. And another quote, he says, I hate all priests and protectionists. Free trade and free thought. Down with pontiffs and tariffs. Away with all schemes of redemption. Now this gives us some insight these are his own words I'm not you know quoting from myself I'm not putting words in his mouth and and I advise everyone that you know anything that I'm saying here you can go to the public library and verify anything and everything that I've said with regard to his life and what he said So not only did he reject the Victorian moral program, in a sense, he is not only, insofar as economics is concerned, he is not only rejecting the idea that riba is prohibited or that money is not a commodity, he is also rejecting all notions of a personal moral commitment. And so, he had homosexual affairs with at least two of the Bloomsbury intellectuals, if not more than that. And he considered the homosexual form of sexuality to be superior. And when he was a student at Cambridge and he joined the secret Apostle Society, he was taught to believe that women are inferior to men in mind and in body. That the love of men is better than the love of women. 
In a sense, what he was saying is that the love among equals, meaning men with men, is better than the love between a superior and an inferior, meaning a woman. In fact, they went to such an extent that they rationalized their deviant sexual behavior into an ethical position. And they called this ethical position the higher sodomy. And so in a sense, Keynes was not your garden variety homosexual. In fact, he was a compulsive and an ideological homosexual. And what this means is that he rationalized the practice in the form of an ethical behavior. Anybody who reads Keynes's correspondence with his gay lovers will immediately notice that homosexuality for him was more than a preference. To him, it was what he considered to be part of the good life. In fact, what he was saying is that at the time that he lived, the intellectual class would not really consider you to be an intellectual unless you were gay. Now, I didn't want to go into this much detail into his preferred sexuality. But it was important to the point that needs to be made now. Human nature is not such that it can be neatly sealed off in mutually exclusive compartments. What I'm saying is that your preferred sexuality has an impact on your thoughts and ideas, on your theories and philosophies. And ultimately, if you happen to be in those kinds of positions, on the policies that you create. So an ideological homosexual is going to have a radically different view of the world then say a person who wants to follow a scriptural program of sexuality. And of course the, the scriptural program of sexuality or the di divine program of, sexual of human sexuality. The divine program emphasizes marriage to the opposite sex, procreation, and family. Economics, like sexuality, is all about managing the tendencies of human nature, albeit in different spheres. Sexuality is about relationships, intimate relationships between human beings. Economics is about trade, it's about monetary policy, but nonetheless, human nature is involved in all of these things. And so in that sense, economics and sexuality are no different. So if you have a deviant view of human sexual relations and family, is it a real stretch to imagine that you are also going to have a deviant view of economic exchanges, of economic relations, given that you're trying to deal with the same human nature? So if you're an economist who is a homosexual, aren't your eco economic theories going to try to protect a relationship that you think is ethical? Isn't it going to try to promote 
that kind of relationship in society? So we just read, and this is again from Keynes' own mouth, his own words, that he rejected general rules, general morals, conventional wisdom. In a sense, what he's saying is that he's rejecting Christianity. And to some extent, Judaism. And this is the point that we need to understand now. And this is how it applies and hits us today. Keynes's rejection of general rules, which was reinforced by his homosexuality, Keynes's rejection of general rules led to his rejection of the gold standard. This is the connection that we need to make today. Keynes's rejection of conventional wisdom led to his rejection of the gold standard. And the gold standard is the best instrument that society has to overcome monetary inflation. And if you understand economics, unemployment, inflation, monetary policy are very closely interlinked. But I don't have time to get into all of that today. But what you need to understand at this point is that his rejection of common morals led to his rejection of the gold standard. Now, how does that affect us today? In 1973, the United States and the Nixon administration got off the gold standard altogether. Between the 1920s and the 1970s, the U.S. was on what is called the gold reserve, meaning that every bit of currency that was printed in the United States was backed up by a certain quantity or a certain weight of gold and silver. But abandoning the gold standard or the gold reserve altogether means that you can go ahead and print money and it doesn't have to be tied to a certain amount of gold or silver in your treasury. It used to be that on the US dollar bill and again, this is before the, before the 1920s, before the Federal Reserve Act. It used to be that on the dollar bill, it was written that you could go to the treasury and exchange that dollar bill or whatever denomination you had, $20 or $100 bill, you could go to the treasury and retrieve an equivalent amount of gold for that denomination. And if you take a look at the dollar bill today, or you know, any U.S. currency today, it doesn't have that language written on it any longer. And it doesn't even say that it's a U.S. Treasury note. Today it says that it's a U.S. Federal Reserve note. But you can't go to the Federal Reserve Bank and say, give me an equivalent amount of gold for this, uh, you know, for this denomination. More recently, the regime of Muammar al-Qaddafi, was most probably destroyed, overthrown, because he wanted a continental currency in Africa that was backed up by a gold reserve. He was, he was just talking about it. In fact, he had 144 metric tons of gold that he wanted to dedicate to that process. Meaning that he wanted to become independent of the exploitative world financial system. The world financial system that is based on debt and that puts borrowers in hundreds of years of debt. Where they have to consume their resources to pay off a debt that never goes away. And so Qaddafi regardless of what you might think about his dictatorial character, the thing that he wanted to do in Africa was to have a currency, an exchange medium that was backed up by gold. 
And the Europeans and the Americans, they came in and said, keep in mind that he's just talking about it. He hasn't done anything yet. And so the Europeans and the Americans said that this person is a threat to the global financial system. They know what they're talking about. They're right. He was a threat to the global financial system. Even though he only represented 0.4% of the world's GDP. 0.4%. But to have a credit-based currency that's going to be backed up by gold or silver or some other precious metal is going to turn the entire debt-based financial system of the world on its ear. They couldn't afford to have that. So you got to take them out. And if you remember, in the process of taking him out, he was sodomized. Radical homosexuals radically persecute those who want to observe a moral standard. It's the Keynesian economics that are responsible for the crushing government deficits of today and national debts that are out of control. This is the kind of economics that mortgages the future to pay for pleasure today or to pay for consumption today. It is completely short-term thinking, leaving the long-term to misery. It's the Keynesian doctrine that says that consumption is the source of economic prosperity. Consumption is the source of economic growth. And that may well be in the short term. But in the long term, we know that perpetual consumption leads to economic instability. And so the issue here is not economic growth or continuous economic growth. The issue here is economic stability and solvency. And economic stability and solvency is achieved by a balance between consumption and saving for the future. And this is the lesson that Prophet Yusuf taught us. You consume and you save. You save for a rainy day in case a disaster happens, in case a crisis happens. You don't want to have nothing in the bank to deal with a crisis. And by the way, at the time that Yusuf was ruling in Egypt with this philosophy, everybody else around him was dealing with other philosophy. Consume as, you, as much as you want right now. This is not a new thing. Keynes just presented it in an academic fashion. But everybody around the domain of Yusuf was interested in consuming right now. And so when the crisis of famine finally hit, from all the domains around Yusuf, he received deputations from all the people that were around his, uh, his, uh, his principality, his social order, asking for relief. And because he had advised his people to save, he was able to distribute some of the resources that they had saved to the people who were starving and suffering from famine. But the result is with the result that it was his domain, his principality, his social order that acquired all the economic and political power. Again, in a just way, not by occupation. By giving, but not by occupation. Now I know that this particular discussion is going to cause you to have to think a little bit to make these connections. But as Muslims, we ought to be the ones who are making these connections. We have the Quran, we have the guidance of Allah's Prophet وسلم, and we ought to be the one who are making these connections. And when we read these kinds of ayat, 
it's just a handful of words وَمَا كَانَ جَوَابَ قَوْمِهِ إِلَّا أَنْ قَالُوا أَخْرِجُوهُمْ مِنْ قَرْيَتِكُمْ إِنَّهُمْ أُنَاسٌ يَتَطَحْرُونَ It's just a few words. Just one ayah. And whatever I, I have said here today, this could be compounded by 10 or 15 other khutbahs on the same topic. Just one ayah, very few words. But when we live in the world today and we're trying to filter all of this information that's, that we're bombarded with every day through, through the Qur'an, these are the kinds of things that ought to occur to us so that we better understand Allah's guidance. For those who depart from Allah's guidance, there is only one result. Persecution and oppression. Instability. Degradation. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم Alhamdulillah Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah Last week during this portion of the khutbah I mentioned the persecution that Tariq Ramadan is enduring and the reason I bring it up again today is that this topic I spoke of earlier is relevant to his persecution. Before the current raft of sexual misconduct charges were leveled against him, the one person perhaps that could be said of taking him to task in the media publicly uh, was a journalist in fact she's made her entire career her public career in trying to resist and argue with Tariq Ramadan now it is not coincidental that this particular journalist happens to be a female her name is Caroline Forest French journalist now it's not coincidental that this particular journalist happens to be gay. Now measure Allah's words with what's happening to Tariq Ramadan. وَمَا جَوَابَ قَوْمِهِ إِلَّا أَنْ قَالُوا أَخْرِجُوهُمْ مِنْ قَرْيَتِكُمْ إِنَّهُمْ أُنَاسٌ يَتَطَحْرُونَ Tariq Ramadan is advising everyone to purity. And his adversaries, they're telling him, get this person out of here. Put him in prison. Put him in a place where we can't hear him. And this is in a domain of free speech. Free expression. Free association. They, they don't want to hear his words. In fact, it's gone to such an extent that this particular journalist and her gay lover coached two of the uh, of Tariq Ramadan's accusers. Coached them about how to deliver their testimony in court. Now, once again, it's not coincidental when we filter these events and these things that are going on through the ayat of the Qur'an. For Allah Ta'ala tells us that once such people acquire power, they want to expel people of purity from their domain. And this is exactly what's happening to him. Now I don't know, insofar as the royal family in Arabia is concerned, how many of them are gay. Information has come out 
that at least their foreign minister has been accused by his own wife of having homosexual affairs. Many of these royals, or not many, but a large number of these royals, especially the younger ones, have been noted to be coming in and out of gay nightclubs in Europe and the United States. This is, this is, this is well known. Now, I don't know whether this radicalization of sexuality in Arabia has something to do with the radical killing of Muslims and non-Muslims outside of Arabia. By the same kind of people who are socialized to the same kinds of ten tendencies inside of Arabia. Now one of their radical tendencies, you might have just seen this in the newspapers, we know what's going on in Gaza. It's said that as, as many as 1400 people have been injured in the most recent rounds of violence, mostly due to rubber bullets that are shot at the lower extremities of the protesters. And they're protesting to go back to their own homeland and at least 22, if not more, have been killed. And so this person who is the crown prince of Arabia, he's really the de facto king of Arabia. His father is basically senile. And so he's the one who's making all the decisions. In a sense, the buck stops at his desk. He's come out and said that the Islamic leader in Iran makes Hitler look good. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> and then, the, the next thing that he said is that Jews deserve a homeland. Now obviously, if he was to make these two statements in the Muslim world, he wouldn't get any traction whatsoever. Hitler is important to the Judeo-Christian Western narrative of history. He's not important to the Muslim narrative of history. We have, if, if we were to cite Muslim history and you were to uh, cite examples of brutality, eh, you wouldn't be pointing to Hitler. You'd be pointing to people from your own history. And then when you say that you want the Jews deserve a homeland, if you were to say that in the Muslim world, the Muslim would say, well, the Jews already had a homeland. It's Israel that destroyed the Jewish homeland. That's what the Muslims would say. And so now the question is, is that when you make those kinds of statements, what audience are you addressing? What is your constituency? Who do these statements mean something to? Is your constituency Muslims? Or is your constituency non-Muslims? And so if your constituency is non-Muslims, and he happens to be, he happened to make these statements while he was on tour in the United States. So if your constituency is non-Muslims, then don't Allah's ayat occur to you? الَّذِينَ يَتَّخِذُونَ الْكَافِرِينَ أَوْلِيَاءَ مِنْ دُونِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَيَبْتَغُونَ عِنْدَهُمُ الْعِزَّةِ فَإِنَّ الْعِزَّةَ لِلَّهِ جَمِيعًا اللهم أرنا الحق حقا ورزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا ورزقنا اجتنابه اللهم اغفر للمؤمنين والمؤمنات والمسلمين والمسلمات الأحياء منهم والأموات إنك قريب سميع مجيب الدعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار
ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي الصلاة حي الفلاح قامت الصلاة قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله 